Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, Where Incarnate Memories Prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Welcome back, Imp Nation. Tom Hensky here. Guess who I'm hanging out with today? A new friend of mine, Daniela Vassan. She graduated in 2008 from the university or Mr. Jefferson's university or however we're saying it nowadays. So Daniela, welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here this morning. So we had a lot to talk about, and usually I ask the question, where did you, you grow up? But I think that might take the full time of the podcast if we went to every place that you grew up. So why don't you give us the laundry list of what you were doing before UVA? All right. Um, so laundry list, um, and briefly, just where, I, where I'm from, I was born in California, uh, my dad worked for Xerox, so we moved around a lot from the different headquarters. And so I've lived everywhere on the West Coast, from the West Coast to the East Coast, Fairfield, Connecticut, which is apparently in your backyard, um, upstate New York, uh, Guatemala for my K-2 education, and then bounced back up to Connecticut in New York and um, ended up uh, landing in upstate New York for my middle school and high school uh, time. So a lot of my moving was condensed to the early times of my life. Um, but yeah, I went to Menden High School in Pittsburgh, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. And um, that's where I really uh, developed the chops to be prepared for the University of Virginia. And so when you were looking at schools, because you were so well-traveled, what, what were some of the schools that were in the mix for you? So I, my parents were really, so my parents both went to college. And I think my dad just had this belief that like, you're going to like wherever you go. And so pick just a few that you want to apply to. Don't stress yourself out. You're going to like it no matter what. And so um, I applied to uh, four schools. Ohio Wesleyan was one of them, which was where my dad went and where my sister went. Um, I applied to Tufts, um, Brown, which because of John F. Kennedy Jr., maybe I had a crush on him or my mom did. I put Brown on the list, but I went and visited it and I really didn't like it. Um, and then University of Virginia. So when I applied, I knew nothing about it and um, ended up applying because one of my mentors who I adore and I'm still in touch with today suggested that I apply. So um, I put my hat in the ring and had a blast writing the application. They had a handful of questions and I had the most fun writing it. And so I thought, you know, whatever, if I don't get in, I don't lose anything. At least I had fun and I wrote some fun essays as a result. So tell me, what did your mentor see that thought that they, you would be a great pairing with UVA? So he felt like UVA is the best place in the world, that nothing compares to it. And he grew up in, in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and so he just felt like there's so much history and depth to the university. And I feel like the, or he, he said, because it was such a large university, there was enough diversity um, from an experience standpoint that I could find different groups to, to connect with. And the programming was like bar none. You know, he, he would say it's, it is the best university in the country. So you will get a top notch education if you go. And um, the school also he said, you know, it's not so big that you're going to get lost and you'll be no one. And so he just felt like you deserve to be in a place where you can shine and where you can grow. Um, I was one of those like uber involved students in high school. I was the student body president. I did student council all four years. I was 
on the lacrosse team. I danced, I was in the Spanish club and the French club. Like I was really involved. And I think he saw that UVA would have some, some resources that would help me to feel like, yeah, you belong. You can grow into this place. So you get there and tell me, how did you find your peeps? Like, how did you wind up meeting your, the people who eventually started to be your circle? So I, the first day, my roommate and I were like, we're going to meet everybody in our, in our dorm. And I lived in Balls, new dorms. Um, and so the first night, I remember we walked and knocked on every single door, introduced ourselves and met every single person, which included Mana, who, was, who ended up being one of the folks that ended up tapping me for, for the imps which I can't wait to share that story later. But um, so I was, I feel like that just kind of embodied how I approached UVA where I just wanted to be involved. I wanted to get to know people. I wanted to know what was out there. I didn't want to miss anything. It felt like college, no parents. And how do I, how do I get as many experiences as possible and make this, you know, time really worth it? I mean, you think about that. That is so awesome that you did that because I would have, I don't remember exactly, but I was a little intimidated those first couple of days. Now, remember, I was in I, play, I was an athlete, so I was there two weeks early. But even when everyone started to pile in the dorm, it was a little bit daunting to me. But you basically just looked that in the eye and said, I'm not going to be fearful. And you just started knocking on doors. And I bet you after the third door, it became pretty funny. And you just were enjoying yourself and your experience, your first year, probably turbocharged because of that. That's awesome. I love hearing yeah, that. Thank you. And I, you know, I felt like now when I look back, I can read all these self-help books and see it's like the power of saying yes. I felt like I was saying yes to a lot. My, the RA on the third floor was a part of Alpha Phi Omega, which is a co-ed community service fraternity. And he was like, you know, you should pledge. Okay, sure. When's the event? Saturday? Great. I'm there. And so I just got used to saying yes to things because it felt like I can always say no, I can always back out, but I don't want to miss an opportunity. Yeah, I think Justin Rosalino was telling us on his interview that he went to the, I don't know if they called it the club fair or whatever the, the thing was where they have the tables and he signed up for way too many things. And he had to, like, before he knew it, he was over his head with commitments, but he said, ultimately that helped him find his peeps and the people that he wanted to hang out with. So, okay, okay then you met your, your people and then you started to, you get to be a second year and tell me, how did the first year go? Was it, was it smooth or was it rocky? Oh my gosh. So it was, it was great because of all the yeses that I was saying and clubs that I was joining, but academically it was awful. Like I think back to that experience and after being able to like take a step back, I realized what some of my, my misunderstandings were. First, I came in thinking I was on top of the world. I was accepted out of state. I was, you know, all of those things in high school. And so I thought UVA is going to be a breeze. I'm going to figure this out. And I happened to join one of the last orientation sessions. So I kind of got whatever classes were open and left over. So I ended up in like a Zen Buddhism class and a comparative literature class. And I was just way out of my league. I didn't understand how to time my schedule. So I had classes at seven in the morning and like five in the afternoon. So I was all over the place. And I think I had like my own understanding of failure and also I'm stubborn. I can be really stubborn. And so I felt like dropping a class was not an option because that was an indication of failure. I also had learned that school was really easy. It always came easy for me and I had good study habits, but I never really had to learn how to study because it always came quickly to me. And so getting thrown into courses where I didn't understand how to play the long game. Like I didn't understand how these kids that didn't show up to, to class or were asleep in class were doing better than me. And so I feel like I'll never forget the, I hadn't seen my parents from when they dropped me off in August to the flight home or to the, um, to the car when my dad picked me up at the airport in at Thanksgiving and telling him I have like a C minus average right now. And I like, I felt like I had disappointed my family that had put so much time and energy and support into me. And I just like, I didn't know what to do to get out of it. And so my dad was like, well, are you talking to your professors? Are you asking for help? And I started to ask, he was like, what are your, what are your friends doing? And so I started to ask my, my peers like, okay, you know, what classes should I take? 
and how do I get help? And so getting the advice to go and talk to the professors during their office hours and actually take them up on it, joining study groups where I actually, like it was about studying and not just hanging out and, you know, messing around. Um, it was really helpful to kind of shift uh, my perspective. And then also hearing from people that dropping classes was really normal and that wasn't an indication of failure, but that like you're trying things out and testing things out to figure out what you want to study. All of those things helped me kind of right the ship over time. And I heard Carlos talk about this in his, in his interview and it just, it struck really, uh, it resonated with me just um, in terms of what that first semester felt like and that first year felt like and the distinction between um, my major and really finding something I'm passionate about versus just taking courses because they happen to be available in my schedule. So that first semester was really hard. If I were to take a step back and also um, recognize when I, so I, I identify as Latinx and Indian and I had a really good friend in high school who applied to UVA also. And when I got in and he didn't, he told me point blank, you got in because of affirmative action. And I remember brushing it off because I was like, who are you to tell me that? Like you weren't in nearly anything compared to me in terms of clubs um, or like just overall involvement. And I thought, you know, maybe he's just jealous. But then after that first semester, when I really started to struggle, I felt like maybe he's right. Maybe I don't belong here. And the imposter syndrome really kicked in for me. Um, and so that took a lot of time and work to undo and really find I think get out of my own head and find where I, I belonged academically at UVA. Meanwhile, like socially, I had lots of friends and a great support system, but it was really jarring to feel like, what if this was a mistake and what if I shouldn't have come here? Right. It's, it's easy to find all the reasons that can support a comment like that, that the person made, because uh, the human brain just makes stuff up. So, you know, you could have like one data point that might support that and then all of a sudden you say oh my gosh he was right and you could self like collapse with that so self-destruct i mean even being an athlete i felt like that too right so you could say oh you know you only got in because you're an athlete and for a lot of us it was true and basically you spend your whole four years trying to disprove that myth and the fact that we're sitting on the phone here means that we both did so did. Uh, uh, let's call that guy. Should we get him on the line? Right. <laughs> said that. So, uh, okay. So now you're there and you're, when did you decide on this major? It's a unique major. Like I, when I saw that, I don't think I've ever heard that major. Tell us about it. Yeah. Okay. So I double majored. And um, so after my first year, I had applied to be an orientation leader that summer. So I stayed at UVA um, and I had, it was like the best summer ever, but I think it was kind of like, what do I have to lose? I'm like, academically, I can only go up from here, hopefully. Um, and one of the orientation leaders had recommended that I take Arabic 101 with him. And I had grown up with a lot of uh, Persian friends or Iranian friends. And I always had a dream to learn Farsi, but the Farsi department wasn't that great. And so I was like, you know, Arabic's not that far. So I took Arabic 101. The professor scared the heck out of me. He had memorized the roster of like 200 kids on before day one. So he starts speaking in Arabic and just cold calling people. And if you ever want like a, an intense emotional rush, like Sawai's class was the one to take because uh, you just never knew when you were going to get called on. And he had no trouble embarrassing you in front of everybody if you didn't know what he was saying. So um, I fell in love with him. I kind of like that tough love. And so I took Arabic 101. Then I took Arabic 102. And then um, he had offered this uh, exchange program in partnership with, I believe it was Vanderbilt and Harvard. So we got to study abroad in Jordan. And throughout that process and those few courses, I found out that you can major in Middle Eastern studies, but you have to focus in a language from the region. And so I was already two classes in and I was really intrigued by the culture and the history. It was just a, a part of the world and a history that I was never taught growing up. And so, I decided like, yep, I wanna, I know I wanna do this. And then advice that I got from, from folks coming into UVA was also like, use this time to connect with your cultural roots. Unfortunately, like Spanish culture and Latin American culture is just not taught growing up. I think it was mashed into one ninth grade global history class for me. And so I decided to also double major in Spanish literature and culture. So I got to read 
some of the great writers from everywhere from Argentina all the way up to Mexico and over to Spain. And so I double majored in Middle Eastern studies with a focus in Arabic and then Spanish literature and culture. And so while this was going on, were you thinking career at this point or were you just very in the here and now? Um, you know, I'd say it was a mix of both. So um, I was definitely looking for ways to just like live into the UVA experience. But I, while majoring and studying abroad in Jordan, um, I, I did that for two summers through, after my second year and then after my third year. I ended up also concurrently reading um, Queen Noor's Leap of Faith autobiography, which was just like, I get goosebumps thinking about it. I absolutely love her. And um, I was really struck by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When I lived in Jordan, um, the 2006 war broke out and I was about 15 kilometers away from the Golan Heights where they were bombing between um, Israel and Hezbollah. I felt like there's a place for me here to potentially work at the State Department or to work internationally with USAID and support with the refugee crisis, particularly in Jordan and really leverage my skills in Arabic. And so, um, you know, that was essentially what I had my heart set on my third and fourth year at UVA. And then when did, during this time, did you get tapped by the imps? Okay, so I got tapped spring of third year. Okay, and uh, do you remember the story of the tapping? Oh, absolutely. And when I heard that you were asking this question on the podcast, I've just been dying to share it because it was so awful. So you're, you're dying to share it with a group that actually wants to hear it and understands it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like now I can actually talk talk openly about this. So I knew a few imps, Elizabeth Chu and Mana were like the two that I knew best. And um, I I remember being at the gym. I think I was on the treadmill or the elliptical, and I kept getting these frantic texts from Mana. Where are you? Dude, answer your phone. I need to talk to you. So I check my phone. I text him or call him. And he's like, I, you need to meet me right now at the corner. And so I'm really sweaty and disgusting. And I run over from whichever, I forget the gym that's over by new dorms. But anyway, I, or I, it was far enough away that I had to like run over and he's panicking. And he's like, I, you know, we're going to meet with Jaquetta because something bad has happened. It's like, oh my God. Okay. Yeah. I'll be right there. So run over. And he's like, listen, remember you invited me to that APO party a few weeks ago? Well, I was drinking there and I'm not 21. And they stopped me on my way home. And I told them that you gave me alcohol. And so the UJC is bringing charges against you for illegally serving alcohol to a minor. <laughs> if Wait, I think about- pressing charges or having a parade and celebrating it? <laughs> Which was that? <laughs> I wish, but he like, he was so, he's like such a jovial guy, but he said it was such conviction that I was like, oh my gosh, okay. And my first thought was, this is the end of UVA and I'm finally getting my poop in a group. And Jaquetta was there and she's like, yeah, this is really serious. And, you know, I knew her through um, student council. So I, like, I, I knew her like from a distance, but I was like, okay, like, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And Mana's like, you know, we need, we're gonna go sit at the Biltmore and have this meeting and talk it out. And when I think about like fight, flight, freeze reactions, I definitely err on the side of freeze. And so I'm pretty sure I blacked out. And I don't, I don't even remember even, the possibility of questioning why we were going to the Biltmore, but it was like, okay, if that's where we need to go. And I remember like, okay, this is my own fate. I'm gonna get kicked out. But I remember turning to Mon and being like, what do you need? Are you okay? Like what's gonna happen for you? Because if, if you get kicked out, then like you have to go back to Thailand and answer to your family. And it's like different, like different stakes for you than for me. And I just remember feeling so guilty that I had put him in this position. And uh, so anyway, we were walking to the Biltmore. And again, I, like, I feel like I've just blacked out because I was in such panic, sweaty mode. But it was almost like a, a wall opened up once we got into the Biltmore. And there's a group of people that are like, surprise. And I didn't understand what was happening. 
I didn't really, I didn't know anybody except for a few of those people where it's like Ian Holder from my French lit class and Isaac Igbeshi Noe from orientation leaders. Like I, I know some of you, but um, I, it really wasn't clicking. I was like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. So what's happening with this case? What do you need? What do we need to do? And like, I remember people hugging me and I was still shaking because I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that it was a joke. And afterwards, Mana was, he laughed and he's like, you know, I, I didn't want to keep going with the joke because you were so sincere and trying to help me, but um, I will never forget that. And I did have nightmares about that multiple times, a few months, like post getting tapped. That's a great joke. That's a great joke. And I don't know that the whole idea that you were at the gym and you're going through this as you're like still sweaty and then going to a social event at the Biltmore in your gym clothes, that is phenomenal. It was <laughs> terrible. Well, yeah, the, unfortunately, the best jokes are terrible. <laughs> With this one, if you've been listening, you know, the jokes get worse and worse and worse. I, I don't know if I've had one yet that I couldn't publish. Yeah, no, not yet. But I'm sure someone will come up with one and be like, ah, we got to edit that one out. <laughs> so, okay, great. So now you're hanging out with the imps and having this great experience. And then you get to your fourth year. Um, tell me about some of the stories along the way while you were there during the four years. Anything come to mind? Funny stories? Silly things that happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I... When, when I was thinking about imp stories in particular, I will never forget, um, like I, I didn't know that the secret societies actually existed. Like I thought they were just like a relic and that they were just signs painted everywhere. So the thought that the imps were actually a thing and that the Zs were actually a thing was just beyond me. And so um, I wasn't necessarily in the middle of the Zoomer fight, but I found, um, somebody found out that there was a meeting on like a, a random evening and we got this alert, like everybody needs to meet right now at the lawn, we are gonna crash a Zoomer party. And someone had shown up with balloons and Kool-Aid packets. And I just remember like sitting in one of the lawn sinks, filling it up with Kool-Aid and water, preparing these water balloons and then running over to the garden and dropping these disgusting balloons on whoever happened to be like the Zoomers meeting in, in a garden in secret in the middle of the night. Um, and it, I felt like it was so not my character and way of being, but it felt so fun to do something where like we had a right to do that or like we made space and took up space to be able to do those kinds of things. And then, you know, so that, that's a, like, that was a bigger moment and the first one that came to mind. But I feel like something I really loved is all of the little experiences that added up to like, what I carry forward about UVA. Like what, after I joined the imps, I became a lot closer to um, like Elizabeth and Mana and Bernard and Sage and just meeting people that I didn't know before. And I loved being able to go see basketball or the baseball games where Caraway was playing and Hudson and even going to, gosh, what were some of the other things that we would do? Like just picking up and driving. Carlos had mentioned going down to Defusky and like, I have a car. Yeah, I'll drive down to Defusky. Let's spend the weekend and hanging out with Massey and Elizabeth, Carlos, um, Bernard. I don't drink gin after that weekend because I had such a good time that um, I will never drink Tanqueray ever again. In fact, it like makes me gag just thinking about it. So the trip to Defusky, even just hiking up, I think it's called Humpback Mountain. Yeah, that sounds correct. I remember that. And that was one of the challenges that we had to do as a, as a group before we got like officially brought into the imp society, but waking up at the crack of dawn and seeing sunrise, like we thought someone was going to be waiting for us at the top to like push us over or give us a wedgie or do whatever was happening with the imps, but to get up there and know that it was actually just for the journey of being together and building a relationship and seeing the sunrise was really magical. Sage was a part of uh, this acapella remix group and going to see her, I think they had Lupe, Fiasco and Common show up. So back in like, I think this was 2007 or 2008, but to, I think I just really appreciated those moments to see people thrive and do the things that they really love and build relationship around that. Were just, you know, the memories that I, I carry forward. You know, 
I've heard a couple stories of jokes we've played on the Zoomers. Um, there'll be an episode that's coming out with Maria Doyle, who she talks about one. I don't remember them ever successfully playing jokes on us. Do you? I don't. And I think because they kind of shoot themselves in the foot because they they are secret until they graduate, which I again, I don't really know that much about them. So I'm pretty sure they get a ring and then they become public once they graduate. Right. But I think because they can't disclose who they are, it really limits how how like public and how adventurous they can be to get us back. Oh, I love that. That's like the ultimate fun right yeah no if anyone who's listening to this if you've ever if you remember a joke that the zoomers played on us i'd love to hear about it i'm i'm betting danielle you're right that they probably because of their secretness or you know somebody would joke maybe say their aloofness that they're too (laughs) too above playing practical jokes on people (laughs) so okay so then you decide to do what yeah okay so i had mentioned Uh, being interested in working at the State Department. And as I was working through applications, um, someone from Teach for America sent me an email randomly saying, you know, let's meet for coffee. And I really didn't think that I would ever want to teach. Education wasn't a part of any uh, life pathway that I envisioned for myself. And, you know, I like kids, but at the time I wasn't like, I'm just dying to be around children. And um, I applied for Teach for America, mostly on a whim, but also I was really intrigued by some of the societal issues that they were addressing and recognizing that there were so many problems in our education system that I was fortunately unaware of growing up. Like I didn't realize the decisions my parents had to make to give me access to things that other people that look like me racially um, didn't have access to. Everything from like, I went to a really good public school but that was a strategic choice my parents made to move to a really good suburb in Rochester, New York, where we could afford a high quality education. And I started to realize like, oh my goodness, that's, that's not what everybody has access to, that type of privilege. And so I decided, you know, maybe, maybe this is my calling. Maybe I need to look more in my own backyard and figure out how to address some of the structural, essentially racism that exists in this country and figure out how I might be a part of making the changes, um, even if it's, you know, in in one city. So anyway, I applied for Teach for America and I got in. It was the first round of applications. So by like November, I knew what I was going to do. So I was able to really focus in on like living it up at UVA. I knew what I I had planned for, um, for graduation. And also this was in the middle of the recession. So, you know, I don't, who knows if I would have even gotten into the State Department or USAID, like I, I, I think back to how fortunate I was to have met the recruiter when I did. Um, so I moved down to Atlanta and, and did the two-year commitment for, for TFA or Teach for America and uh, fell in love with education. I absolutely loved the community and the children. Um, I learned a lot about myself racially and, you know, some of that work had started while I was at UVA in part, um, through organizations like Sustained Dialogue and some coursework that I took through the education school. But I learned a lot about myself and my own limitations. And um, I decided, you know, teaching, I wasn't sure if it was gonna be what I wanted to do forever, but I really, I fell in love with it and I wanted to do it at least for a few years and really, really get good at it and really make a difference um, where I could. And then, so you're doing the Teach for America, and then you went back and you did some more schooling too, right? Yeah, so unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, uh, the laws were changing around teacher credentials. And so a bachelor's degree was no longer enough in the state of Georgia to teach. And so halfway through my first year teaching, they were like, by the way, you need to enroll in a master's degree program, or at least continue to take coursework so that we don't have to fire you in your second year. So the, they established a partnership with Georgia State University and I ended up taking some coursework. And so I decided, you know what? I'm just gonna get a master's degree and I'm gonna do this. And so I decided to stay on and teach a third year and then uh, finish my master's degree in my second and third year of teaching. And then how much longer were you in Atlanta for? Is that where you were in Atlanta? Yeah. Yep. So I was right in the heart of Atlanta. Um, the school I taught at doesn't exist anymore. Um, my, I, so I stayed four year 
four years teaching. And that fourth year, the district was seeing a lot of attrition and also gentrification. And so the school board had decided they're going to close, I think, 21 schools at the time. And unfortunately, my school was one of them, even though like I, I still disagree to this day that the school should exist. But it was kind of, it was a beautiful location because it was equidistant from where Martin Luther King grew up and then the Capitol building. And so just thinking about the power to be in a location that has so much historical value, like I, I just, I'm so grateful for, for the opportunity to have, um, to have been in that like epicenter. But I ended up, I taught for four years that it was called Edis Cook Elementary School. Um, and I taught third through fifth grade. So third grade was my favorite. I definitely loved the eight-year-olds. My God, those kids must have, must have worshipped you. That must have been the best, right? If you ever if you ever need to prop up your ego, go hang out with some third graders, right? Uh, the yeah. They still give you hugs, but they can go to the bathroom independently. It's perfect. Yeah, that's a perfect age. And then, and then they get to be teenagers, and then it all changes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to insert my own life on that one during your interview. Don't worry about it. So, okay. And then, so wh what transpired from there? Did we, what was the next step? Yeah, so I, um, my uh, partner at the time had moved after our two-year commitment. So he was also doing Teach for America. I could actually knock on the wall of my classroom, and his was on the other side. Um, so he ended up moving up to Minneapolis two years before me. And um, I had told him, you know, he knew that he was going to be up here for a six-year commitment. And so it was either six years of long distance. Maybe we moved to a place that's like a little bit, or I moved to a place that's a little bit closer to where he is, or I live in Atlanta and maybe we break up. I really wanted to be able to achieve the things that I wanted to. And so I told him my dream job was to open a charter school. In part, that was a reaction uh, from some of the challenges that I experienced at the district level and feeling uh, the challenges of working in a really large bureaucracy and also feeling that school closure was really, really difficult, I think emotionally for the community and realizing that there's another way. It doesn't have to only be the district is the answer. And I, I, I'm a huge proponent of public schools um, and district schools in particular, but I also feel like our systems have a lot of work to do. And so I started to explore what uh, the charter world could bring. And um, he had connected me to an organization um, that also no longer exists. I hope that's not a sign of something, but it used to be called Charter School Partners and um, it has since evolved. So it does exist in some ways, but they were, they were on a mission to help support teachers as leaders to open independent charter schools in an effort to start fresh with the right building blocks rather than turnaround efforts, which at the time had like a 90% failure rate. Like it was nearly impossible to turn around an already existing school. And so I ended up um, applying for that my third year and I got it, uh, third year teaching and I got it, but I felt like I need a fourth year under my belt because this feels too soon. And so they let me defer my acceptance a year. And so I taught a fourth year. So again, like my fourth year, I, I could really just focus in on working with the children and not about like what's happening next in my career. And I moved up to Minneapolis. So that was uh, July of 2012. And um, I was partnered with a high performing charter school where they were in need of, um, they were in the process of expanding and in need of a principal to open their second elementary school. So they had one flagship elementary and they had a middle school that they were expanding to. So I had the unique privilege of learning from an already established school and then an expanding school and what it was like to, to really like be in startup. And so um, I decided in February to put my hat in the ring and I got the job in March for an August opening. So it was an absolute whirlwind for like six years of leading that school because it, it started with me door knocking at early childhood centers and head starts and canvassing neighborhoods, buying my curriculum, setting up a school schedule, hiring staff with only like five months to go. Um, like I hired someone the day before school started because we had enough kids to pass the, th the threshold to have a third classroom. So it was just like, it was a wild, wild ride. And so I started the school um, with kindergarten and then added a grade level one year at a time until it became a K-4 program. And um, I, I stayed throughout that whole process, grew the program. I think we had like 300 something children by the time I left and almost 60 staff members. So it was, 
it was a lot of time and energy. And I, you know, I, um, I think back about how seriously I took myself, um, especially through that school startup phase. And um, it was really sobering by the time I was ready to leave. I felt like I've dedicated so much of this or like my time to this project and I need, I'm ready to step back and hand the reins over to someone else. And I also started questioning what, what system had I helped create and what was I perpetuating? You know, for in education, we talk a lot about how the systems that we have in this country are designed to get the results that they get. The systems aren't actually broken. And by the time I left my network, we had grown from that one and a half school to now five. And we were codifying our practices and standardizing behavior. And that scrappiness that I felt at the beginning of door knocking and meeting families, like I knew every parent's name and I knew every child's name. But then to grow into a system where in many ways it just felt like a mini district, we were losing some of the things that, that drew me to that type of work and feeling like we were just replicating what other schools were doing and other systems. And we were moving away from really responding and representing the actual needs of the community. And I think for me too, there was a, a sense of, like I identify very strongly with the Latinx community. And what does it mean to have almost an entirely Latinx community that's looking to me to have the answers and they're trusting me that I'm that what I'm doing and what I'm leading is actually going to result in better outcomes for them than the district school down the street. And so um, I really struggled with like the inequities that we were perpetuating, how the system was structured and realizing like maybe this isn't the place for me. And so after I was there for a total of seven years, I led the school for six. I decided to take a step back and look for for my next adventure. And so tell me about your partner from Atlanta who moved up there. Uh, how long was the gap between when he moved there and then you moved there? And then how did that relationship progress? Oh, I love Josh. I can't help but smile talking about him. So he had moved up to Minneapolis right after our core commitment. So 2010, and then I moved up in 2012. So it was a two-year gap. And then so um, you're up there. And then when did you get married? So um, we took our sweet time getting married. So we we did the long distance thing for two years. And then um, I was ready to get married. But Josh was like, you know, we should probably live apart the first year that you move back because we need to make sure that this is still working for us. And um, <laughs> I did not like that very much, but I acquiesced and we lived, we lived apart. We dated for a year and then we ended up getting engaged at the end of that year that I moved back. So 2013, right before I founded my school. And then um, we kind of dragged our feet making decisions. Like we could get married in Denver where my parents retired. We could get married in North Dakota or Florida or Minneapolis. And so we were just kind of paralyzed by choice. And so we had almost a two year engagement. And I told him, if we get to two years, I'm out. This isn't happening. Um, so we ended up getting married in June of 2015. So, okay, so then you get married and then you start to do some different things career-wise, right? Then take me into what you, you pivoted to at that point. Yeah, so I actually, just one quick thing about when I when I had made the decision to leave my school, my grandmother had passed away that, that last year that I was there in August. And I'll never forget my dad called and he was like, you know, we know you loved your grandmother, but professional development for your school is about to start. We get that you're super busy. And, you know, we know that you're here in spirit. And I was like, it was like a record scratch. I was like, what are you saying? You're giving me a pass to not go to my grandmother's funeral? Like, no. So I started to realize I had taken myself way too, too seriously and built this reputation within my family that I valued my job over my family. And when I say what I value, I value my family more than anything in the world. And so that for me was a, a really critical moment of what I say, I believe, versus how I actually live out my values. And so I flew out, I went to the funeral, and I was there with my family. And I decided, you know, what are the things that I want to look for in my next job? One of them was work-life balance and flexibility, where I can actually like show up for the people that I say I care about. And um you know, I, I was balancing all of all of my needs for what I wanted professionally with also 
the sense of um, like, I don't know that I have it in me to work in education anymore because I don't want to work in a system that's failing at the rate that it is. And I ended up coming across this organization called Wildflower, where a number of my colleagues had worked. And I was really struck with the, the purpose behind it, where Wildflower essentially started with this one dad who works at the MIT Media Center and was looking for a school for his son, Dario, and he couldn't find anything. He couldn't find anything where he felt like his son as a little brown boy, beautiful brown boy, could thrive and feel accepted and seen, where he could explore and where he was put at the center of his own life and his own journey, and where we could just honor the humanity while also using high quality education. And um, so our founder, Seth, ended up partnering with a few Montessori teachers and he decided, I'm just gonna build it. I'm gonna build a school that I want for my own child. And so he started one school called Wildflower and uh, this is in the heart of Cambridge and people would walk down the street and knock on the door and ask like, what is this? It was a shop front school with these beautiful windows so people can see in and see children learning. And that led to another school and then another school and another school. And after a handful, he was like, you know, I think this is beyond what I have capacity for. And I think it needs to turn into its own organization. So Matt Kramer uh, got involved who established Wildflower in 2016. And we've now started to, um, like we've supported 40 schools to open across the country, everywhere from Cambridge down to Puerto Rico and all the way over to California. And it's been really beautiful to see what it looks like to support teachers as leaders, where they get to build a school that serves anywhere between like 12 to 30 children in one to two classrooms that are all implementing high fidelity Montessori. And where each school, even a mile apart or even, you know, a few city blocks apart from the other can look completely different because they're truly responsive to the community that they're serving. And um, so I, I fell in love with Wildflower and I couldn't stop talking about it to people. And the only role that was available was around fundraising and development, which I knew nothing about. And I always assumed like fundraising was like, but I thought about it for like a month and I couldn't stop talking about it. And I decided, you know, this is a signal that this is the place where I, I need to be. Um, and so now I, um, I support teachers in Minnesota, and then also nationally to raise the startup capital to uh, go toward paying for the, the startup costs to get their the school of their dreams and their vision up and running. Wow. That's impactful. That's, that's amazing. You know, we're gonna have to uh, remind me, we're gonna have to put in the show notes a link so that anyone who wants to get involved, either, you know, just cheering you on or even writing a check, uh, they should be doing that. That's, that's a huge, huge endeavor. Unbelievable. And it's, it's the type of thing where you're, you know, it's your professional life, but you're also changing the world. And that's kind of been a current theme of the people that we've been talking to. Everyone's changing it in their own little way. And that's amazing. And I know your therapy includes the dogs. Yes. Okay. So I, we don't have children in part because I feel like working in education, I'm around children and I love them, but my dogs are definitely my children. They're sleeping right next to me um, on the couch. So I have Frank, who originally was named Francis Underwolf, but then everything happened with Kevin Spacey. So now we just introduce him as Francis. Um, but we have Frank, who's like a Maltese Havanese uh, mix. He came from a puppy mill. And then Greta, who um, we were fostering on a pathway to find Frank, a, like a companion. Um, and we failed miserably because they get along really well. And she's a, like a five pound Yorkie. She's 13 and Frank's 12. So we got the geriatric pups, but we love them. And, you know, do you get back to UVA at all? From It's, it's a little bit of a trip from where you are now, right? It is. And I, I was thinking back. So I, I think when Elizabeth and Bernard got married, uh, I happened to be... Uh, training teachers through Teach for America in Philly. So I was able to make the drive down to UVA and I think that was 2010. So I haven't been back in 11 years and I'm dying to go back. And, you know, I don't ask this that often, but I'm starting to, any like challenges or struggles that you've been going through that like, you know, you're, 
you don't have to talk about it, but anything that's been going on that's noteworthy that you know you'd want to share? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think for me right now, and like I'm I'm brown. I present brown. I don't look white, but I think for me a, a challenge that. I've experienced and and become even more conscious of, especially in the last few years, is both like the challenges I've experienced being brown in the United States and having to justify my worth or justifying why I belong somewhere, while also reckoning the fact that like for people that knew me in college, I always chemically straightened and flat ironed my hair. Like now it's it's a big curly poof ball, but realizing the different ways that I subscribe to it, like whiteness in general. And, you know, I introduced myself as Daniela. My, my name is Daniela, but I don't pronounce it that way because I learned it's too hard for people to say. So without even thinking about it, my name is Daniela. And, you know, I, I've just come to kind of like code switch between culture. And so I think there's that personal struggle of, you know, how to talk about that with people and how to create a space of curiosity and understanding of of the reality that I experience. And then also understanding, uh, and I hope I'm not getting like uh, too esoteric with this, but like there is what we call proximity to whiteness and all in service of, of like keeping one community down, which in this case is like the anti-black sentiment or, or like I can gain privilege as long as somebody else is further down than I am. And so, for me, it's also being really careful and conscious of how I've subscribed to anti-Blackness and the ways that like, yes, I'm brown, but I also can't even pretend to understand the experience of being Black in America. And what does it mean uh, to really unpack my own racial understanding and, and live in a world where I, I am truly operating from a place of inclusion and doing my part to make sure that everybody has an opportunity uh, because I play a role in that too. Like I can be oppressed and then at the same time do that exact same thing to someone else. And so, you know, I, I regularly uh, reflect on that. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear Frank digging in the back, sorry. Yeah, Frank, what's going on? Frank's trying to get in the interview. <laughs> so um, let's shift gear. So you have so many cool life experiences and some of them took place at UVA. A lot of them took place after UVA. If you weren't making a trip back to UVA and talking to today's imps, what would be the message? Okay, so I think this is a lesson that Elizabeth Chu helped teach me through her just like modeling unapologetically. Um, and I, I recently heard Brene Brown talk about the difference between fitting in and belonging. And I, I gave this advice in full disclosure, because it is something I'm still personally grappling with and something that um, I'm still building the courage to figure out. But she essentially defines the, like, the difference with fitting in being more like, you will do whatever you can to blend in and be like everybody else and will like self erase your identity as a way to belong with a group versus belonging where you're willing to stand alone if that's what it takes. And I give Elizabeth so much credit for teaching me that because she unapologetically leaned in to what it means to be Asian at UVA, what does it mean to be a minority, and addressing and very openly naming the systems of oppression that existed. And I didn't feel that courageous. And so I looked to her as like, Ugh, help give me the courage that I need. And she helped me also enroll in the education-related classes around um, racial identity development that really put me on a completely different path that I think ultimately made me ready to join Teach for America and really understand my own privilege um, and that it wasn't an accident and it's also not an apology for the people that look like me culturally. Um, and so I guess my, my advice would be really centered around like really understand the ways that you fit in and understand the ways that you belong and then do whatever you can to really understand who you are as a human being and make space for yourself unapologetically to, to belong and not fit in. I mean, think about it. If that was the only thing that you got out of UVA, if that was the only thing, I mean, what a good use of four years that would be for us, right? Yeah. If, we, if we could, that's like, that's big time stuff. I love it. 
Well, when you do go back, are you a Bodo's fan? I am. I waited and then I would go do Bodo's runs every weekend. I loved it. And um, I think I know your next question. What was it? Give it up. Lox and an everything bagel. I could eat that every day, any day. That's awesome. Yeah, you can't beat the Bodo's order. Cannot beat it. Well, all right. And you know, my favorite question is your favorite word with the letters IMP in it. Okay, so I was reading this book called The Four Agreements by uh, Don Miguel Ruiz. And he, okay, so I was reading that book the first time I listened to your episode, uh, your first interview. And the first agreement from The Four Agreements is be impeccable with your word. And so my word would be impeccable. And it just, it felt like kismet. So the first agreement is be impeccable with your word, meaning recognizing that there's great power in the words that you use. And first and foremost, like don't go against yourself. Don't say things about yourself and reinforce negative messages, even as little as like, oh, I have a terrible singing voice or I can't do that. Um, but recognizing the power in words. Um, so I would say impeccable would be mine. Well, perfect word because you are impeccable as we just heard for the last 50 minutes to an hour. Gosh, that, you're so awesome. I wish I was in school when you were there. That's like, you know, it's, that's the cool thing about this for me. I'm meeting so many amazing people who have not had a straight line. Uh, in fact, most of us have not had a straight line, but it's always in the right direction and impeccable, as you just said. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being part of it. And Imp Nation, I'm going to put uh, some stuff in the show notes. Check it out. We'll put some contact information too if you want to reach out to Danielle. And you, you're going to host us all when we come through Minneapolis, right? Anytime. I'm not kidding. We have after COVID, I renovated every room, like painted, decorated every room. So we have plenty of space. Come at any time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on Imp Nation. Keep me in the loop with anything that's going on. A couple of you have some uh, cool things going on, new jobs, new families. Everyone wants to know about it. So make sure we get it in the email that goes out. And if anyone has any questions, reach out to me. I'm glad to help. Daniela, you're the best. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Take care, Imp Nation. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense, C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.